This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. What's the focus on BFM 89.9, the business station? Welcome back. You're listening to The Morning Run with Philip C. Anwar Mabo and I'm Wong Xiaoning. It is just gone past 9.36. It's Friday. Woohoo! 1st of December. And because it's Friday, we have our special show. We call it WTF or What's the Focus? Our weekly roundup show of the top stories this week and maybe other news tidbits that you might have missed. I think we're going to start uh, with the story of the passing of two great men, but let's just discuss one first, which is of course Henry Kissinger. He has passed away at the at the age of 100 and of course he was the very famous scholar turned diplomat who in a nutshell engineered the United States opening to China, negotiated its exit from the very painful Vietnam War, but is also known to be extremely cunning and ambitious but highly intellectual. That's right. I think, um, you know, when you look at Henry Kissinger, one thing that struck me is his concept of real politic. Mm. He was a kind of polit- he was a kind of diplomat that didn't believe so much in idealism, more interested in getting things done, more important to get things done. But it came at a huge cost, right, throughout this whole process. So, and that's why he's so, his, his longevity is there, right? Being mm. able to, you know, advise 12 over US presidents in that whole piece. His pragmatism has come at a huge cost, but at a high impact. Okay, so we should actually understand what makes him tick, I think, as to why he mm. decided to take this path of being just so practical. And he was very obsessed about the concept of maintaining peace at all costs. Now, the question is, what is right when it comes to at all costs, right? Because he was a German-Jewish refugee. He arrived in the United States. They didn't. He didn't come from a very privileged background, but he yeah. worked his way. Um, he went to the army. He then went to Harvard. He's a PhD student, highly, highly intellectual. So like you said, he served 12 presidents. He joined the Nixon White House in January 1969 as a national security advisor, then was Secretary of State in 1973, And he actually stayed on even after Nixon resigned due to the Watergate affair. He stayed on under President Gerald Ford. And he was the only American to deal with every Chinese leader from Mao to Xi Jinping. Mm. So in July, age 100, he met Mr. Xi and other Chinese leaders in Beijing where he was treated like visiting royalty. It's well, amazing. I, that's right. I think one of his biggest track records was actually to, you know, foster relations with China. If you recall, right, I mean, now, now what we think about the US-China relations is very different to where it was then. It was non-existent. He built it up, I think. Uh, and at the time, if you recall, there was huge tensions between China and Russia and how he actually tactically used it to decouple that relationship. And he actually had to have secret missions to China to basically rebuild that relationship, resulting in that iconic Nixon trip over to China. But I think when he's looking back now, and seeing how relations have deteriorated since then, he probably is thinking, well, look, why are we not pragmatic Mm. about rebuilding relations with one of the biggest economic powers of the world? Well, you know how close he is to China because one of the tributes that have poured in around the world, Beijing called him a good old friend of the Chinese people who made historic contributions to normalising relations between the two countries. And even President Vladimir Putin praised Kissinger as a why wise and far-sighted statesman 
While Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said his meetings with Kissinger provided a masterclass in statementship. So he's friends with all of them. I know. All of them. Well, I think what's interesting is he's really a massive contradiction because in addition to causing up with, you know, communist China, he's been accused, right, in Latin America, South America, for being cozy with anti-communist mm. dictators, right? And of course, you know, many label him as a war crimes uh, criminal. Uh, Although in, he did win the Nobel Peace Prize in, in, in 1973, at the same time, right? <laughs> Go figure. A man of contrast and irony. And he also, I mean, over back to Asia, I mean, he has been also accused of breaking international law by authorizing the secret carpet bombing of Cambodia. That's right. In the, this lasted from 1969 to 1970. This was an undeclared war on an ostensibly neutral nation. So I think really, if you think about it, I think closer to Asia with also the Pakistan-Bangladesh genocide, he probably is less well-remembered for you know those things. But I think over in the United States, I think deeply loved. Well... We also need to mark uh, the passing of Charlie Munger, who is, of course, the the BFF of Warren Buffett. He, the of course, both of them created Berkshire Hathaway to be the powerhouse conglom- conglomerate that we mm. know today. Uh, we talked extensively about this with Rajan Devadasan, CEO of RD Wealth Creation. So do tune in. You can listen to that podcast, actually. It's uh, entitled Rest in Peace, Charlie Munger. So this week marked the passing of two very different men who have had lasting legacies in their own respective fields. What do you think is his lasting legacy, you think, for the overall investing community? I mean, for me, it's the ability to speak plainly, but to you know, to distill sophisticated principles for many of us to kind of embrace. And that's why I think retail investing is not where it is because of him, right? It's where it no. is because of him. But I think the combination works very well, yeah. uh, right? So sometimes it really is a reminder that for something to do well, you it, it may not always be a journey alone. You just need to find that right partner, right? Mm. And that right partner and you combined can really make a difference because Warren Buffett credits him with actually pushing uh, Berkshire Hathaway to consider investments that they otherwise won't because for the longest time, it was just about value investing. And Charlie Munger said, no, you should look at railroads, you should look at insurance, you should look at consumer products. And also, Charlie Munger apparently never minced his words with Warren Buffett. So in life, right, if you surround yourself with yes men, you won't get anywhere. Absolutely true. It was a very good sidekick to Warren Buffett. He was his rational compass, wasn't he? Yeah, and I think that tension is necessary, the creative tension of being able to think about different ideas because you cannot make investments purely on emotions, right? Mm. Your own personal convictions. You do need to get feedback and input from everybody else. Yeah, you need that soundboard. Uh, But let's shift our tension to some very positive news coming out of India because all 41 construction workers who were trapped in a collapsed mountain tunnel for 17 days, guys, 17 days, in northern India were brought to safety hours after a rescue, rescue crew drilled through debris of rock, concrete, and mud to reach them. So military engineers had to use the so-called technical rat hole mining technique to dig or dig by hand to clear the rocks and rubble over the remaining 9 metres. That's 29 feet with temperatures plummeting in the remote mountain location. Well, I think that what's very interesting is, look, it seems very long and it is, of course, very long. Hello, uh, one day in a tunnel is scary. 17 <laughs> days is amazing. Okay? I know, I know, I know. Right? What kind of impact does it have on your mind and you'll be so worried? It's just shocking. Well, I'm glad this really turn of events turned out positive because we saw the, the situation in Chile and all that. That was mm. really not as good. In this case, at least the men were given access to light water 
water and medicine right through a pipe and also they were supplied with hot meals through this 15 centimeter pipe you know and also getting oxygen through a separate pipe so i think that also kept the spirits alive in addition to the fact that apparently they were playing cricket while trapped wow it's a long corridor (laughs) i suppose the idea is to keep yourself busy and to keep yourself positive right that help will come the question is is this should they have been digging in the first place? What mm. is the reason for this tunnel to collapse? Was this part of the mountain supposed to have any development? As we know, it is an area which is apparently prone to landslides, earthquakes and floods. And as we know, climate change is real. So, you know, we, we ourselves have had many landslides in Malaysia, right? Yeah. I mean, you're talking about this whole 1.5 billion Chadam Highway, which is, of course, one of, you know, Prime Minister Narendra Modi's landmark projects, you know, aiming to connect these four Hindu pilgrimage sites through this 890-kilometer network of roads. So, you're right, you know, I think the question is, at what cost do you have for development, development. right? And these, you know, incidences of, you know, land land. Landslides and all that. It's not unique to India. We've seen it happen in Malaysia very close. If we reflect this year as well, uh, we've seen it all around the world. Yeah, which is a good way to end this segment, at least this part of the conversation on COP28, where we're trying to address the issue of climate change. It's happening. It started today. And I think a lot of the focus is really going to be how we're going to fund uh, devastation, climate change in countries, poor countries, right? Is mm. the fund ready? And governments are going to be a main player. But I think what's also increasingly important is for corporates to participate. Mm. I think that was this whole landmark decision to fund about $400 million. Of course, that's tiny in, in mm. comparison to what's actually needed, where the developed world will be helping, I think, developing countries. Although there was quite a lot of debate over the text. Apparently, the United States was not in favour of this. And how do you kind of track and trace, you know, at what point do you need to put that support from developed world? So apparently, $400 million US million has been agreed upon. What's unusual, it's agreed upon on day one. Normally, mm. it's agreed upon in day like 30 last minute lots of negotiation uh, but it was court president who actually shook up the meeting by bringing the decision to the floor immediately. Mm. And I think next week we're going to have intensive coverage over the progress at taking a COP28. And our own reporter, Shazana Mokhtar, will be there. Yes, Ooh. she'll be telling us what's on the ground on Monday at 8.30am. So do tune in. We're heading into some messages. We'll come back and take a look at what's happening back home in Malaysia. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. It's 9.48, Friday the 1st of December and you are, of course, listening to WTF or What's the Focus, our weekly recap show. Helping me make some smart comments, I hope, it uh, is Philip C. Anwar Mabo and I'm Wong It's a given, isn't it? <clears throat> okay, moving on. You know, they say if you don't have anything nice to say, just keep quiet. But anyway, let's talk about this anti-smoking bill because Dewan Rakyat has finally passed it. Uh, the revised control of smoking products for public health bill, that's the whole name, via a voice note yesterday. Let me just tell you, this is a bill that dominated headlines for months this year and last year. Yeah, it went on. This newly passed bill was the Health Ministry's third attempt to enact legislation on the anti-smoking vape control bill. And what this bill does, it prohibits the sale of tobacco products, smoking substances, or substitute tobacco products, or providing any services for smoking to a minor. 
I mean, the health minister assured that the much stricter enforcement will guarantee the effectiveness of the bill in reducing smoking prevalence among the public, as reported in few countries such as Singapore, Australia, and New Zealand. Of course, while we you know welcome this bill, I think what is interesting though is that, of course, as everyone has been focusing on, is the removal of the GEG generational endgame provisions that come with it, and of and I think there has been so much pushback over those provisions, and even you don't you see that happening all around the world, even mm. in New Zealand, they've had to backtrack on those specific provisions as well. Okay, so I'm actually looking at this article from Code Blue, the Galen Centre, and these are comments from, uh, of course, uh, Azro Muhammad Khalid, who is a frequent guest on BFM, and we just actually talked to him not too long ago. But he just does, he does acknowledge that this is a major achievement in anti-smoking and anti-vape efforts in Malaysia. And the, what was, but there are still some things to dissect, okay? Uh, there were questions raised by MPs and there were more than 25 MPs who were not happy about the, the fact that the GEG, GEG part was left out and they did put pressure on the health minister. And I do like that. I like the fact that in parliament, there is debate and it's debate on policy. It's not personal. Nobody's yeah. throwing, Agreed. you know, these kind of comments about, you know, uh, what are you wearing? Although or, it's still happening though. Although it's still happening. I mean, <laughs> this is where, this is what we want our lawmakers yeah. to be doing, right? Talk about policy. So he says that there were a few issues and of course there were the questions about the justification for the government to drop the GEG, uh, the absence of PSSC recommendations and of course the alleged interference by the tobacco and vape industry. Those were the the points that the health minister was put to task mm. in terms of ans- answering. I think those are very fair questions, but unfortunately what happened was that they just brought in this whole constitutional consideration, right? Which then, I think you're, tr- you're trying to elevate the reason why you don't do it, but you're mm. actually using the constitution as perhaps the bogeyman to why you shouldn't do this. And I wonder whether there are other issues to actually have to contend with. And I think this is where there was so much ire and controversy, right? If you compare that versus the, with the former health minister, Carrie Chambaludin, who really felt like, look, if, if it is an issue with the constitution, then let it be challenged in the courts. Yeah. But the the point is that there was this nicotine vape gap for a long time. Which and you had to address. Yes. And I didn't understand why it needed to be there because we didn't really change anything with regards to the taxation. There was the argument, right, that we were going to relook at the custom duties. But even then, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe somebody knows better than me. I don't think there was any, there was any change to that, right? So for the longest time, vaping was legal for anyone mm, from like yes. one year old could do it there was no issue about it of course now we plug that gap but then has it already caused serious harm to I children mean, in the meantime i mean look private health care costs so much money we just went through the ihh uh, report and in the corner of prep for them was about one billion ringgit that's that's yeah. that's a big profit for them but i mean like look this this i mean private health care that's fine if they're making money legitimately but the thing is you know should, we should be looking at smoking more seriously because it, it is a scientific fact that it causes harm to one's health. Mm. Although some ministers have refuted it though. Yes. <laughs> okay, let's turn our attention to progressive wages, right? So the government released its progressive wage white paper on Thursday proposing to implement a pilot project between June and September next year. Apparently, it's going to be a selected number of companies. They are going to do so voluntarily. What's excluded are... GLCs, I do believe, because they pay their staff pretty well already. 
that's not necessarily no. the case. But and then C's and GLCs. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I okay. I think it's interesting that they're targeting MSMEs, right? And why why the specific exclusion of GLCs or MNCs? So what happens if they choose to volunteer and participate in this? Well, they're deemed to have already paid competitive wages. You see. Mm. Well, that's the. So, assumption. if you work for a GLC, tell us, is that the case? <laughs> is that the case, right? I, I, I have some reservations about that assumption. But it's only for people who earn a monthly salary of between one thousand five hundred and four thousand nine hundred ninety nine yeah. ringgit, and only limited to Malaysians. So, apparently, four million workers in the formal sector will be impacted. I think I know why they excluded it because there is an incentive structure that encourages them, right? If you t- adopt this measure, because it's a two hundred ringgit incentive, I think for companies who participate. Yeah and 300 for the non-entry-level post. So I think that's why they're trying to ring-fence out these larger corporates to say, look, you're all big buffaloes, so you all can do it yourself. But the MSMEs... You don't need the government's we, money, right? Exactly. So you, MSMEs, we want to support you and give you it. That's why we've ring-fenced it that way. Okay, what else is the positive for this is that apparently it's going to add 0.22 percentage points to 0.5 percentage points to real GDP growth. There's also going to be a bump up in terms of contributions of 790 million to 1.98 billion to EPF and an increase in income tax revenue by 1.8 billion to 4.4 billion ringgit. So an impact assessment will be conducted to evaluate the effectiveness of this pilot project. And this report will be presented to the Cabinet before full-scale implementation, which is expected to take place after December 24. So you do a pilot. When you say full-scale implementation, means you're going to open it to everybody, isn't it? But it will still be voluntary. I think that's one of the key things that there's being touted about this policy, that it's not being mandated across the board. At the moment, it's still voluntary in nature. My point about this is that, is it still going to be linked to productivity? You know, because... I, I'm I'm all for Malaysians earning more. I think there's no denying that a lot of, especially graduates, are yeah. underemployed. But we need to connect it to productivity for for it to work, to really be meaningful, for there to be long term benefits mm. for the economy. Because at the end of the day, yeah, you got this GDP increase, you've got this increase in EPF, you got an increase in in tax. But in a in a some form, because of the cash incentives you're giving out to encourage companies to do this, it is a bit of a left hand and right hand. So we need to also push ahead for in for companies to say, okay, I'm going to take advantage of this. I'm going to move up the value chain. I'm going to automate more. I'm going to be more productive. I'm going to make my workers, you know, not just work harder but work smarter. Mm. Otherwise, what's the point of this progressive wage model? Yeah, interesting, right? Because what I find interesting is there was this AI study that came out by the European Central Bank that said actually AI will actually not reduce jobs. It'll just stifle wages. The wages will stagnate as a result of AI. You won't lose jobs. You actually might create jobs, right? Mm. But it's just that wages will stagnate because of the proliferation of AI. Because AI is an efficiency tool. Yeah. But how do we overcome this? Because inflation is real, right? Mm. We can't just tell people, oh, you can earn the same salary for the next 15, 20 years. When we know the cost of living pressure is immense, especially in Europe where heating costs takes a big chunk out of your take-home pay. So what do you do about that then? How do you make... How can you use AI to make your jobs even more productive? Is the question I think lawmakers, policymakers yeah. should be thinking about, even companies also. And that's why people talk about living wage. That's one of the biggest challenges, right? But that's even another, some will argue, another form of handout. Yeah, well, uh, that's all we have from the morning run on WTF. In fact, probably we've posed more questions than we have answers as usual. <laughs> Coming up next is the 10 a.m. news bulletin, and then it's over to Enterprise. Keep it here. 
BFM 89.9. And to take us out is Once Upon a Time by Marvin Gaye and Mary Wells. Keep here, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.